Good. So I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Romans uh, this morning. And you picked a great Sunday to be at church. I think every Sunday is a good Sunday to be at church. Amen. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 1 this morning. We're starting a new series. So this morning actually is an intro into the book of Romans. This is going to be our series probably for the next 12 months, uh, the next year. And so uh, I don't have to plan anything for the next year. I've already got the next year planned out. How about that? I mean, I don't know what I'm doing this week as far as like home stuff or what I'm going to eat this week, but I'm preaching on Romans pretty much for the next 12 months, so praise the Lord for that. Uh, I'm really excited. This, this series is really a series that I think is going to be needful for our church, uh, helpful to us as believers in Christ. If you were here on Wednesday night last year, uh, we went through the entire book of Acts on Wednesday night, uh, and then we went over uh, probably about a year, a shade over a year going through that study Uh, that transitional book of the book of Acts. And I really, at that time, felt like, man, when we finish Acts, I want to get into the book of Romans. And so I've been itching to get into Romans, really, for for about a year. And uh, the Lord has to do it in His timing, and I feel like this is the time for us. And so uh, let me give you a little bit of backstory. This morning's a little bit different uh, in the sense that I'm going to give you some kind of backstory to the story. I'm going to preach a little bit, but I'm also going to give you some, some tools that I think will help you in your understanding of the book of Romans and why it's in your Bible and why God put it where he put it in the Bible. And so uh, Romans, of of all Paul's epistles, uh, Romans is the sixth book or sixth epistle that God allowed him to write. And so chronologically, as it it comes in your uh, New Testament, it is the first epistle uh, that Paul wrote from from a placement standpoint, but it's not the first uh, chronologically. It actually was his sixth book. Uh, it was written on his third visit to Corinth, and uh, I'll show you how we know that here in just a second. Uh, here's the point. Uh, God used Paul to write Rome, the, the book of Romans. Uh, Paul had a desire to get to Rome, and I, you know, if you've read through the New Testament, uh, point number one in your notes is this. Look, Paul desired to get to Rome. You read about all his missionary journeys through the book of Acts, And early on in Acts chapter 19, Paul purposed in his heart and desired to get to Rome. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, the Bible says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. I must also see Rome. He purposed in his heart and spirit, Look, i got to get to Rome. Why? Why? Well, listen, Rome, Rome was a, a significant city as it relates to the gospel. I mean, listen, it was full of Gentile believers. It was, it was a diverse culture. Uh, there certainly were Jews there, but there was a pre- predominance of Gentiles. And the Roman culture, man, was an interesting culture. You could say that America, really, for the, for the conversation's sake, we are the new Romans. I mean, a civilized culture, a heavy emphasis on government, a heavy emphasis on military, a heavy emphasis on education. And listen, that's what Rome was. And and it was a key city in the Old Testament or or early New Testament, if you will. It was a key city that would be strategic to get the gospel literally to the world. And, And so Paul understood that significance God understood that significance, and and God wanted to get the gospel. As as you read through Acts, God always gets the gospel to key men in key cities, and that's how the world is reached. And so so Paul was burdened in his heart, I must see Rome also. God gave him the answer of his, his desire in Acts chapter 23, 
and so in Acts 23 and verse 11, the Bible says, The night following, the Lord stood by him. This is when Paul went back to Jerusalem and, uh, and got arrested and beaten. And uh, some people warned him not to go back to Jerusalem, but he did anyways. He said, I'm not worried about dying. Um, and, and so, you know, he gets imprisoned. The night following, the Lord stood by Paul, stood by him, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And so the Lord confirmed to Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. Okay, uh, He had a desire to get there, and God answered that desire. Now, now we, we studied in the book of Acts on Wednesday night whether or not Paul should have went back to Jerusalem. Uh, instead of bypassing that, maybe going directly to Rome, maybe he should have done that. Uh, here's what I know in Romans chapter 1 and verses 10 to 11. When Paul writes the epistle of Romans, he has not been there yet. He's, he's writing in anticipation of hopefully getting there to see these believers. Romans chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. He says this, Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. And so, so Paul's desire was... I want to get there. I want to get to Rome. I want to invest in your life spiritually. And he kind of says this, you know, if by any means, now at length. And, and the truth is, God got him there eventually. God got him there as a prisoner. <laughs> and, and whether or not that was really God's plan for Paul, we could argue that. But the point is, uh, God promised in Acts 23, the Lord himself promised, I'm going to get you to Rome. And he did. And we've studied the book of Acts extensively, those of you that have been here on Wednesday night. And so the book of Romans really is aimed at Gentile Gentiles who have become believers in that Roman Empire. And I'll say it again, people in America really are, we are Gentiles for the most part, and we are mostly Romans. We're Europeans, right? We, we've, most of our, our history and our culture is, is from the European uh, crusades and stuff that came over. And so we are the new Romans uh, in, the, in this country. We, we can identify with that Roman culture on so many different levels. And so the truth is the book of Romans for America really is a key book, in my opinion. Uh, it's certainly a key book for us as Christians, but I think culturally it speaks even more to our culture because we are the new Romans. That's probably why there's not a lot of preaching from the book of Romans in the 21st century church. Because it really hits us right between the eyes. I mean, there's things that God says in this book for a Roman Gentile culture that he addresses that needs to be said from God. And some of those things are tough things. <laughs> and, and, and listen, man, as, as new Romans, uh, we don't necessarily maybe like or appreciate those things. And yet God has a message for us. And so it, it's Paul's sixth book chronologically that, that God gave him. But the second point is this, even though it's his sixth epistle, it's the first of the church epistles in your Bible. In other words, in other words, its placement in the New Testament is very important, it's very strategic. I, I just want you to know that as much as God had a hand in inspiring and preserving his word, God also had a hand in putting that book in the order that it's in. And so, and so the book of Romans, again, is, is the first of the, maybe the, the church epistles, if we'll call them that. So if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know the first four books are the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And, and those are historical books that, that outline for us and detail for us the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that until there is the death of a testator, a testament is still in effect. And so even though your books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in your New Testament, because you know, that's the way they're ordered, I want you to understand that the New Testament doesn't begin until the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Hebrews says that testament is still in effect until the death of the testator. And so those gospel books, they are historical books, they are still predominantly under the Old Testament law and standard until the death of Jesus Christ. And then the next book in your Bible is the book of Acts, right? Right? Okay, I was just making sure you're still awake. We have coffee. The next book is the book of Acts. It's a transitional book. And what we learned on Wednesday night for the last year and a half is when you start the book of Acts, I'm going to say some things and listen, if you weren't here on Wednesday night and you weren't part of that study, just listen and let the Spirit of God maybe give you understanding. When we started the book of Acts, we learned that there weren't any Christians at the beginning of the book of Acts. They weren't even called Christians until Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. At the beginning of the book of Acts, literally, it is, it is the beginning of the New Testament because the death of the testator has just happened. In the beginning of the book of Acts, there is no indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happened in Acts chapter 2. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Paul is a lost Pharisee. In the beginning of the book of Acts, there is no revelation or understanding of this thing called the church or the body of Christ. So Acts is a historical book. It certainly carries us through some transitional things to get us to the New Testament. The book of Acts is not a doctrinal treatise on church doctrine. In other words, if we don't rightly divide the Bible, at the beginning of the book of Acts, you have God dealing with the nation of Israel. At the end of the book of Acts, you have God dealing with the Gentile nations. At the beginning of the book of Acts, you have signs and miracles and wonders. By the end of the book, you don't. By the beginning of the book of Acts, you have, you have you know, Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1 still on this earth teaching his disciples, but then he ascends. And by the rest of the book of Acts, you have the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. In the beginning of, of the book of Acts, you have Peter as the key apostle that God is using to preach the gospel. And his ministry is primarily to the Jew, the nation of Israel. But by the end, of, by the middle, and, and then toward the rest of the book of Acts, listen, Paul becomes the main minister that God uses to get the gospel to the Gentile nations. In the beginning of Acts, the emphasis is Israel. In the end of Acts, it's the local church and the church body of Jesus Christ. God moves his emphasis from Jerusalem in the book of Acts early on to the city of Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And what you see in this last transition is there's an emphasis on the kingdom of heaven early in the book of Acts. A literal, physical kingdom that the nation of Israel is expecting. And by the end of the book of Acts, the emphasis is the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. And I just gave you about a year and a half of study uh, in five minutes. So Acts is an important book. It's a transitional book. Without the book of Acts, the book of Romans makes no sense at all in your Bible. Can you appreciate what I just said? Listen, Romans is the beginning of God's doctrine, God's treatise of salvation, God's foundation, if you will, of church doctrine for the New Testament. And so um, 
Romans is an important book for us as Christians. It is, it is the foundation of church doctrine, of, of, of doctrine concerning salvation and all that that entails for the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I would say that Romans, and many others have said this, Romans is the filter by which all church doctrine must go through. If you think you have something that applies for the church today, you have to filter it through the book of Romans. It is, it is the foundation. Romans has over 70 quotes from the Old Testament, more than any other New Testament book. And so the book of Romans shows us fulfillment of prophecy over and over again as Paul makes his case concerning salvation and Christ. Whew. Okay, that's all free. <laughs> Just to get you started. So as we, as we get into the book of Romans, again, let me just give you some, some keys that will help you. I want to I give you th- point number three in your notes. I want to talk to you about three key people. Because this book is so awesome. Uh, all of God's word is awesome. But, but listen, can you go to, I told you to go to Romans chapter 1. Can you go to Romans chapter 16 real quick? Romans chapter 16. And what I want to ask you to do is go to the very last verse, verse 27. And depending on your Bible, you may not have this little subscript at the very last part of the chapter here. Verse 27 says, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And then, and then in some Bibles, under that last verse, there's a little subscript. And it just gives you a little more information about the book of Romans. And it says, written to the Romans from Corinthus or Corinth. And, and sent by Phoebe, servant of the church, at Centria. Okay, go back to Romans chapter 1. So, so you have this little subscript, if you will, at the end of the book that gives you just a little bit more information. And so there are three people I want to introduce you to this morning concerning the book of Romans. Number one is the Apostle Paul. Paul is, is the apostle. He is the inspired human instrument that God used God used Paul, God inspired God's word through this man, the Apostle Paul, and ultimately those words were captured and put on paper, okay? Now, again, this morning is not meant to be over your head or technical, but but as introduction, you need to understand a principle called inspiration in your Bible. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, sometimes we think in our mind that when God gave the scriptures that God moved on a man and he just sat down in a, in a room by himself, pulled out a quill pen and some papyrus and a bucket of ink and just went to town. Like God's Holy Spirit just came on him and what he did was he wrote a letter. He wrote scripture, not even realizing what was happening. And then he, he was done and then boom, there's the book of Romans. Okay, and if you think that, I used to think that. I was like, yeah, that's how God gave us the scripture. God, God, God forced these guys, he inspired his Holy Spirit on these guys, and man, they, got, they put pen to paper, and boom, there it is, the book of Romans, you know? I wish sermons came that easy, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You'll wish that too once we get done with this today. <laughs> That's not how it happens, though. The Bible teaches there's a different process. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us, verses 20 20. 20 to 21, Peter gives us a little bit of insight into this process of inspiration. Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, 
For the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God, what's the next word? Holy men of God did what? They, they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So when inspiration happened, did the men write or did they speak? They spake. Thank you, whoever used the King James word. <laughs> Past tense, spake. Uh, Derek, I skipped this slide, but can you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16? And, and I want to show you this verse. The Bible says all scripture. How much scripture? All scripture is given, and how is it given? By inspiration of God. God inspires it, and when God inspires it through his Holy Spirit, men speak. There, there are words that are spoken. That's, that's the moment of inspiration. You say, Jay, that doesn't make sense, man. How, how did those words get captured and put down on papyrus? Well, you're asking good questions because the second guy I want to introduce you to is a guy named Tertius, a guy named Tertius, and he is the scribe who put pen to the paper. And you say, how do you know that, Jay? Well, Romans chapter 16 tells us in verse 22, at the very end, the 16th chapter, the last chapter of the book of Romans, verse 22, the Bible says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Now, wait a second. I thought Paul wrote it. Well, Tertius took credit for it. <laughs> So either, 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 either Tertius really did write it, and maybe we don't fully understand inspiration and inscripturation, or, or maybe Tertius is a liar. I don't think that's the case, or, or Paul's a liar. I certainly don't think that's the case, right? See, before we even get into the book of Romans, we already have a problem. The problem is, how did God get us his scripture? How, how did God get us his scripture? In other words, can we trust the book of Romans? Because listen, this whole series for the next year ultimately depends on you believing whether or not God can get you his words in your language through a human instrument. If you can't believe that, if you can't believe that you can have God's words today, well, friend, I don't know what you believe you have. And, and so, you know, inerrancy, the word inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is not only inspired, but it's free from mistake or, or falsehood. Uh, and, and, and so we would say that, that inspiration is when, the moment when God breathed through his Holy Spirit, that understanding, and the author spake, whether it was Paul, whether it was Moses, whether it was, was Timothy, whoever it was. But at some point, those words were caught and put to the paper. Listen, the modern definition of inspiration is the original author and the original autographed the original time it was written. That's, that's the Bible college, seminary, advanced education, PhD, and I'm not trying to be critical or crude or an idiot, but I am trying to say, based on that definition of original manuscript and original author, we already have a problem because Tertius is the one who penned the book of Romans. So who was inspired, Paul or Tertius? Paul was. We have a problem. Paul's pen never touched the paper, the papyrus. I keep saying paper, but he, it never touched the papyrus. He dictated this entire thing to Tertius, his secretary. And so there is no original manuscript that was originally authored by Paul. 
And you would say, well, how can a man who's sinful, how could God use a sinful man to record the accurate words of Scripture? And I would say he did. <laughs> because he promised he would. Because there was a, a process of inspiration, and then there was a process of inscripturation. And, and, and listen, this whole thing of original manuscript, only mindset, only the original author and the original writings are inspired and inerrant. Well, we already have a problem because Paul didn't write Romans. But he was the inspired man of God whom God used to speak it. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Listen, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, when Paul wrote to Timothy, his young disciple in the faith, the young man that he won to Christ, that he mentored, that he trained, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says this, and that from a child, Timothy, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ. In other words, Paul told Timothy, you have in your hand the holy scriptures. Well, did Timothy have the original autographs by the original author? Of course not. What he had was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And yet, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, said, what you hold in your hand is the Holy Scriptures. It's the Holy Scriptures. And you say, why are we making such a big deal about that as we begin the book of Romans? Because, friends, if you don't believe you have in your hand God's Word, when it says something you don't like, you can just say, well, that's man's interpretation. That's man's interpretation. God doesn't really mean what he says, and so I'll just change it. You see, we have to understand the process of how God got his revelation to man. And so let me give you a couple of steps in that process very quickly. And by the way, we teach this in detail in ministry tools and training uh, on Sunday nights. And so if you go through our discipleship process uh, we hope you get a handle on this. Number one is revelation. God reveals himself. God manifests himself to humanity. And then there's a process of inspiration that we read about in 2 Peter chapter 1, where, where, where God's Holy Spirit moves on a man and he begins to manifest God's wisdom in words. He speaks. You okay with that statement? And then listen, those words are caught, they're captured out of the air in a process called inscripturation, and those words are recorded in writing. Inspiration happens when the man of God speaks, inscripturation happens when those words are caught and written down. And listen, Paul may have wrote it, Moses may have wrote it, in this case, Tertius wrote it, they are still God's words. They're still God's words because there's a process that God divinely put together so that we can have his words in writing. Number four is transmission. In other words, those words are taken and they are copied for other people. That's why Timothy had the Holy Scriptures. He had the Holy Scriptures. And then after they are copied for other people, God providentially promised to preserve his words and protect them. Psalms chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. And then lastly, God is able to take those words and he's able to translate those words into language. Okay, well, we don't have the originals either, guys. I don't care what Bible you have this morning. You don't have the originals. Uh, but you do have 
hopefully a Bible that was given through a process of inspiration and, and inscripturation and transmission that was providentially preserved through the priesthood of believers throughout history. That's why Tertius is in your Bible, to show you that God's Word is still God's Word when it's captured out of the air and written down. God shows us a process of inspiration and inscripturation. And then the third person that I want to introduce you to this morning is a woman named Phoebe. And I'm not talking about friends this morning, <laughs> but we could. <laughs> Phoebe, and Phoebe is the messenger that actually carried this epistle to the city of Rome. Now, now where was it written from, church? Corinth. And, and so we had to get from Corinth to, to Rome, and, and Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and Tertius, his secretary, pinned these things down, but then God wanted to get that word, that inspired, inscripturated word, to Rome, and so he, he used, this is really cool, a woman, a sister, to get it there. Look at Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul says in the book of Romans, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at, at, at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succor of many and of myself also. In other words, God used this lady, this woman, who, by the way, had a pretty awesome reputation. Her reputation was she is a servant of the church at Centria. Do you have that reputation? Do you have that reputation? Could, could, could God Almighty trust you with an inspired, inscripturated word to take it to the people that need to hear it? Well, guess what, friends? That's what he's called you to do. That's what God has called every one of us to do. Listen, she was faithful enough and had such a reputation that Paul and Tertius trusted her to get the inspired, inscripturated word of God to the audience that needed to hear it, the saints at Rome. And because it's in your Bible, she did her job. And listen, similarly, we are to be servants of the church. And guys, listen, God has commanded us to take God's inspired and inscripturated word to the intended audience, the world. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And uh, let's, let's just get into Romans 1 real quick. Uh, can, you, can you go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 and, and look at that first verse? And, and let me just give you, because I'm, I'm getting wound up now, and we gotta, we gotta, I know we're, I'm watching that clock, but I want to just, I, I don't want to leave without talking about this this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. So we get into the text, and here's what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And, and, and so Paul identifies himself as the author, as the, as the inspired uh, man of God whom the words of God came to. And so I know this is not on your sheet, so all the people that like filling out blanks right now are like, where's my blanks? If you turn that sheet over... There's one big blank. Use that as much as you want to write down what we're going to talk about for the next five minutes, all right? And then we're done, and we're going to have the Lord's Supper. I want to give you Paul's credentials. Paul's credentials. Verse 1 says, Paul opens this letter. There's three things that he says about himself that I think are super important for us today. 
Number one, Paul says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a servant. Phoebe was a servant of the church and a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul said he was a servant of Jesus Christ. And, and if you were to, to look at some of his other epistles, Galatians, Philippians, the book of Titus, over and over and over again, Paul positioned himself in servitude as a servant of Jesus Christ. He, he models for us the same mentality that Jesus Christ himself had. And I want to give you Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, because Paul in one of his other epistles says this about Jesus Christ. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind are you talking about, Paul? Well, here, here's the mind that Christ Jesus had. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. I mean, Jesus' ministry was a ministry of being a servant. He had the right mind. Listen, he is God in the flesh. And yet he came and he humbled himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant. Christ did that. Paul was a religiously trained Pharisee. I mean, this guy was the Ph.D. of his day concerning the Jewish law, Jewish customs, and the scriptures. And yet, the Bible says he humbled himself and became a, a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of the churches. And friends, listen, this morning, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I a servant? Listen, when you got saved, you got saved to serve. You got saved to serve. You say, well, I'm still trying to figure that out. No, friend, uh, you need to let the mind of Christ be in your mind. <laughs> God Almighty came and humbled himself to become a servant to the, to the church, to, the, to mankind, to humanity. And listen, Paul himself also had the same mind that Christ had. And listen, the question on the table is this morning, do we have that mind? When we got saved, do we understand that we got saved to serve? We did not get saved, friends, to sit we did not. That's not biblical Christianity. And, and so many times in our churches in the 21st century, man, people come, they sit, and they get up and they leave, and, and, and maybe they're saved, and I hope they are saved, but there's just no admonition that you need to become a servant of Jesus Christ. You need to become a servant of the church of God. You need to become a servant to take God's inspired and inscripturated word to the people that need to hear it. I mean, we have to have servants. I want to be a servant. And, and listen, I battle that just like you battle it. Because I'd rather serve myself than sometimes serve the Lord. And I'd rather serve myself than sometimes serve you. And I'd rather serve myself than sometimes serve fellow man. We've got to change our mind, according to Philippians chapter 2. We've got, we got to have the mind of Christ in us. Well, the second thing that Paul says about himself is that he was called to be an apostle. He was called to be an apostle. An apostle, the word apostle just means sent one. Now we know that there were 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles. When Judas fell, we know that he was replaced uh, in the book of Acts chapter 1. Uh, Paul himself was also an apostle. He calls himself an apostle that was least of the apostles in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 8 and 9, concerning the resurrection, he said, Last of all, he was seen of me. Also, as one born out of due time, for I am the least 
the apostles. And I'm not meet to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. You know, Paul, Paul said before he got saved, before he met Jesus on that Damascus road, he was against the church. He didn't serve the church. He persecuted the church. And, and when God converted him, God changed his life, and God gifted him to be an apostle, he said, you know what, I'm not even worthy. I'm not, a, I'm not worthy of this calling in my life. And, and friends, listen, we're not either. We're not worthy of anything that God has gifted us with. We're not worthy of our salvation. We're not worthy of our spiritual gifts. But listen, God has called all of us to be an apostle in the sense that we're all sent by him. We're sent. We're commissioned to go in his name. And, and we have to walk in that calling. Don't let your perception of who you are before you got saved limit who you are now in Christ. I mean, listen. The least qualified guy to stand here and teach you God's word is this guy, okay? Because I know who I was. I know who I was before I got saved. Many of you don't, other than when I've shared my testimony. You know bits and pieces, but you don't know who I was. I am least. And yet, every one of us have a call of God on our life to walk in. And so we can't let our perception of our past limit God's power in our present. We need to walk in our calling, whatever it is, whatever his giftedness in our life is. We need to walk in that calling. And then thirdly, I love that last part of verse 1. <laughs> Man, this is good. He says, I'm a servant, I'm, sep- I'm, 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 I'm an apostle. And then thirdly, he says, I'm separated unto the gospel of God. I'm separated unto the gospel of God. And, you know, when we think about salvation, many times we talk about what we are separated from and saved from, right? Our sin I don't know about you, man, but I was a pretty sinful guy when I got saved at, at the age of 21. And I won't go on a laundry list of things that, that God saved me from, but it was all sinful. And, and many times we think of salvation as what God saved us from. And, and many times in our Christian life, we spend our Christian life saying that if we're not doing those things, we're separating from those things now because we're a child of God, we think we're okay. Well, well, listen, there is Bible for biblical separation. I mean, Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he did say, come out from among them and be ye separate, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you. In other words, we, there is a call when you get saved to kind of separate from that old life. We all understand that. Here's what many of us don't understand. God calls us to separate from some things. God calls us to separate unto one thing. And, and the one thing that God calls us to separate unto is the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. God, God saved us to separate us unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, if we are born again, I'm going to make a statement here. I hope it doesn't make you mad. Look, but if we're born again and we have separated ourselves from our sinful lifestyle, from unclean living, from R-rated movies, and, and all the things that you think make you a bad Christian, okay, fine. You can be morally right, but if you're not separated unto the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're no different than your lost neighbor who's as morally right as you are. You're no different than your... Now, you may be saved, but if you're not separated unto the gospel of God... The neighbor that you have that you hadn't witnessed to yet that's morally right but doesn't know Jesus has the same lifestyle that you have. 
So what's the difference? Well, well, one, you've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you need to realize that you need to separate yourself unto the gospel so that God can use you to reach the world, starting with your neighbor across the street. Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, when, when Paul and Barnabas were at the church at Antioch, <clears throat> they were ministering there, they were, they were teaching there. Uh, the Bible says in Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Uh, again, I love you all. <laughs> and if you're saved today, God certainly wants you to be separated from some things. Uh, the problem with our culture and Christianity in the 21st century is that many of us are separated from some things. We're just not separated unto the one thing. In other words, we are saved, but we're, we're not walking in obedience to the great commission that God has called us to. And that's not just the preacher's job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the deacon's job. It's, it's not just the Sunday school teacher's job. It is every Christian that has been saved and born again. Listen, we are called to the gospel ministry. And he says in that, in that, in that phrase, listen, the gospel of God. That's what Paul was separated unto, the gospel of God. Well, that phrase, the gospel of God, is used seven times in your Bible. Romans 15 and verse 16, Paul says that I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering what I'm going to minister to them. I'm going to minister the gospel of God to them. And so the question is, man, are we ministering the gospel of God? When's the last time you administered the gospel to somebody? Well, I'm in church every week. Thank God for that. <laughs> I'm serious, man, thank God. But when's the last time you've administered that gospel to somebody else? And so we see that, that phrase, gospel of God, in Romans 1.1. We see it in Romans 15 and verse 16. We see it in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 7. We're going to hit these quick. Paul says, have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? Do you know the gospel of God is supposed to be preached? So, so some of us fall into the trap, and I, again, man, I know we're over on time, and, and we'll be okay, because the Lord has us here. Uh, some of us are, are, are maybe a, a little misunderstood in our understanding of the gospel. That is a verbal, that's a verbal ministry. It's a verbal ministry. Well, if I just live my life right, man, people are going to ask me, they're, they're going to see Jesus in me. Okay, no, yeah, yeah, I mean, they will. But your walk has got to match, your talk has got to match that walk. In other words, what comes out of your mouth has got to be the reason that I live the way I live. It's because of Jesus. I mean, listen, it's the gospel that changed my life. And, and, and the reason I don't act like everybody else and I'm not a fool like everybody else and, and God's grace is in my life is because the gospel of Jesus Christ. That message has to come out our mouth. It has to be preached. Man. So I've been saved 20... I don't even want to tell you how long I've been saved. <laughs> Almost 22 years. Uh, and I got saved at 21, so you can do the math. You're like, man, you look a lot older. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so in being saved almost that long, 22 years, I can count on one hand how many times somebody has witnessed to me after I got saved. In other words, in other words, you would think if we are all separated under the gospel, 
we all as professing believers, that we would start bumping into each other like, man, let me ask you a question. Are you saved? Yeah, man, I am saved. Let me tell you about how I got saved. And how about you? Are you That's happened less than five times in my life in almost 22 years. And I'm not talking about people knocking on my door with false religion and cults and things like that. I'm talking about genuine people presenting the gospel to me because they don't know if I'm saved or not. Less than five times in 22 years. We need to be about preaching the gospel. We need to be about preaching. God help us to speak truth in love to the people God brings across our path. First Thessalonians, Paul says, when, when he spoke in chapter 2, verse 2, when he spoke the gospel, he was bold. He wasn't bold in his flesh. He was bold in his God, though. you got a God that is the God of all gods. He is the one true God. And if your confidence is anything, it's not in your ability to present. It's not in your ability to speak or, or, or present in a way that makes logical sense. It's just, man, I have confidence in who God is. And because of that, I can speak the gospel to whomever God allows me to do that. It's, in, it's confidence in him. He also says in 1 Thessalonians that, that when he preached the gospel to those Thessalonians, he didn't just give them the gospel, but he also gave them their own souls. In other words, after he won them to Christ, he discipled them. He discipled them. He, he was willing to give of himself. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says he labored day and night. You know, sometimes some of us have the mindset, we ain't got no time to preach the gospel, man. I got to go to work. I got to go to work. You don't understand my family situation. I got kids. I got soccer. I got t-ball. Man, I got to work night shift. Well, Paul said he labored and travailed, laboring day and night. And, and by the way, he did that so that he wouldn't have to take any money from these guys for his ministry. So he, he did his tent-making thing. And while he was doing that, he also said, I preached unto you the gospel. So there's never a better time to preach the gospel than today. And, and, and listen, our schedules are full, and they only get fuller. So in the midst of that, just preach the gospel. That's where God has you. And then lastly, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. Peter says, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what well, shall, shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? You know what? The gospel is to be obeyed. It's to be obeyed. You know, when, when, I, when I was 21, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 real quick and we're done. When I was 21 years old, my best friend in college asked me the question, if you died today, Jay, are you 100% certain you'd go to heaven? That's a loaded question. <laughs> and I said, man, I believe God's real. I believe Jesus is real. I believe that whole story about the cross is real. But I personally can't tell you if I have assurance that I'll be in heaven when I die. I know I'm going to die at some point. And the way I was living then, it would have been a lot sooner than later. I said, I don't know. He said, can I take my Bible and show you how you can know? And so he walked me through the book of Romans. He, he took me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what the gospel is. It, you know, we're, we're talking about the gospel this morning. I don't want to be so foolish to think that everybody understands what the gospel is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and he says in verse 3, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And, and my best friend started sharing with me from the word of God that we're all sinners according to the book of Romans. And we've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned against God. We've trespassed against him. And because of that, we're guilty in our sin before God. 
And man, for the first time, I, it was like the, 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 the microscope just laser focused in on my life. Not, not the sins of the world, my sins. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> Got real uncomfortable. But then he shared with me, that's why Jesus Christ came. He came to die for the sins of the world according to the scripture. And that means that he came to die, Jay, for your sin. And there was no doubt, man, that he, he didn't have to try real hard to convince me that I was a sinner at that point. At 21 and in college, uh, I was certainly living it. The Bible says in verse 4 that he, Christ, was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That Jesus Christ bore my sin penalty. He died on that cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But three days later, he came out and he's victorious. And because of his resurrection, his, his victory over death on the grave, it shows that he has power that I don't have. It shows that he is God. And if I'll put my faith and trust in his finished work, I could be saved. Well, at the age of 21, I said, that's the best deal I've ever heard. And I, I want to repent of my sin, and I want to trust him as my Lord and Savior. I did that at 1130 at night on my best friend's couch at his mom and dad's house. July 11th, 1997, I understood the gospel of God, and it changed my life forever. So this morning, you know, we talk about the Lord's Supper, and, and really, Corinthians tells us that the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, really is a reminder, it's a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. As we talk about the gospel of God, God gave us a, an ordinance, if you will, to remember that by, we, we have to remember it, number one, because we personally experienced it. We personally put our faith and trust in Christ. But then secondly, we remember what Christ did by taking the Lord's Supper. We don't, we don't get saved by taking the Lord's Supper, but we certainly remember. I mean, every time we have the Lord's Supper, God takes me all the way back to that couch in Hartsville, Alabama at 1130 at night. And I remember hearing the gospel clearly, plainly, and the Holy Spirit of God convicting my heart. And making me realize I need, to keep, I, need to, I need to get saved. I need to put my faith in the finished work of Christ. And so this morning, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to observe communion and then we're going to dismiss after in a word of prayer. But, but listen, Paul writes and he says, when he had given thanks, talking about the Lord Jesus, he broke the bread and he said, take and eat, this is my body which was broken for you. That happened on Calvary. This do in remembrance of me. Jesus never wants us to forget the gospel. And as as it relates to us personally. And after the same manner also, he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, this cup, is the, in the, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he, till he come. And, and I'm thankful for the privilege we have to take the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, if, if you don't know the gospel, well, hope you, hopefully you heard it from the word today. You can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ right now. You can confess your sin, realize that without him, you're separated from God and guilty. But if you'll put your faith and trust in his finished work, you can be saved. And you don't have to come to the altar to do that. You can settle that issue in your heart right now. All right, right now. Let's bow our heads and pray. I'm going to ask our ushers to come and distribute the Lord's Supper to us as I pray.